Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to the New Books Network. Welcome to New Books Network. I'm your host, Schneer Zalman Newfield. In ancient Rome, all the best stories have one thing in common, murder. Romulus killed Remus to found the city. Caesar was assassinated to save the Republic. Caligula was butchered in the theater. Claudius was poisoned at dinner. And Galba was beheaded in the forum. In one 50-year period, 26 emperors were murdered. But what did killing mean in a city where gladiators fought to the death to sate a crowd. In A Fatal Thing Happened on the Way to the Forum, published by Harry N. Abrams in 2021, Emma Southern examines a trove of real-life homicides from Roman history to explore Roman culture, including how perpetrator, victim, and the act itself were regarded by ordinary people. Inside ancient Rome's darkly fascinating history, we see how the Romans viewed life, death, and what it means to be human. Emma Southern holds a PhD in ancient history from the University of Birmingham. She co-hosts a history podcast with writer Janina Matheson called History is Sexy and works part-time as a bookseller at Waterstone's Belfast. I'm so glad her new book has brought her to our program. Welcome. Hi, so good to be here. Terrific. Well, let's get started. Could you tell us a little bit about your background and what led you to write this work? Um, So I'm an uh, ex-academic, a recovering academic. (laughs) (laughs) Um, I uh, do my PhD in ancient history, um, ancient and medieval history, looking at families um, and the fall of the Roman West and discourses of family, uh, and then stuck around in academia for a little bit, um, doing kind of academic publishing and things like that, and then um, kind of accidentally fell into writing non-academically and discovered that that is more fun and that people pay you for it. Uh, <laughs> oh, it's a nice thing. Yeah, um, instead of just shouting at you. Um, so that, that was, um, that I, my first book, um, I pitched kind of um, very casually on the sofa uh, on my phone to an editor who was looking for a hundred word pictures. Um, and my sister w- was visiting me at the time was watching something very boring. So um, I pitched a hundred word biography of Agrippina and he called me the next day and was like, yeah, sure. You do want to write me a full proposal? <laughs> <laughs> wow. <laughs> um, and it kind of went from there. So it was a bit of a, it wasn't a kind of very particularly well-planned career progression. <laughs> um, and then I basically just stopped applying for academic jobs um, <laughs> um, which is as you know if you're if been anywhere near academia you it's something that you do every nine months um and are constantly thinking about so um yeah I stopped doing that and started writing for um for non-academic audiences and trying to write the kind of books that I would want to read basically um because I have quite a 
short attention span. Um, and so I wanted, I wrote to entertain myself and to tell the stories that I wanted to read, um, which is exactly where this book came from, because it started with a conversation with a friend of mine who is a teacher um, in Georgia, a history teacher. And we were talking about true crime as a kind of really interesting lens for historical analysis and how you know, what crimes are considered to be important, what kind of who are the undead, like the less dead victims of any given time, um, what they tell you a lot about society. And I thought, God, I bet someone's written a really good book about Roman murder, about Roman victimology, about, um, you know, gruesome murders in the Roman world. And no one had, as it turned out. And then I really wanted to know, like I wanted to use true crime as a lens to look at what Romans thought were bad crimes and what they thought were the kind of people that you could afford to lose um and yeah it turned out to be very gory and quite horrifying but um but quite fun <laughs> <laughs> right well your 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 um your writing style is definitely uh, uh really distinct because you have your academic background your academic training your 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 you know deep uh and thoughtful analysis and at the same time your your writing is very um, accessible and and um, juicy. So, could you, could, <laughs> would you mind giving us uh, a little flavor uh, of your book, if you could read a, a oh, passage hi. for us? So, this is a couple of uh, passages from the chapter on murder in marriage um, about um, domestic murder, basically. Um, like all the best detective stories, the story opens with the body of a woman being found in Rome in the early hours of the morning. The sun was rising, the birds were singing, and a woman's crumpled body was lying on the ground. The body was that of Apronia, the wife of the praetor Plautius Silvanus, and she had fallen, somehow, from a high bedroom window and not survived the fall. This was suspicious. Apronia was the daughter of Lucius Apronius, who was a very important man in Rome. He had enjoyed a successful military career in Germany and Dalmatia and had put down a revolt in Illyricium. For this act, he had been granted the right to wear triumphal regalia, which was a very special outfit. Being the daughter of a man who was allowed to wear a very special outfit was a bit like being the daughter of Brad Pitt. Everybody wanted to marry Apronia so that they could hang out with her dad. Her dad had chosen Marcus Plautius Silvanus, who was the man of doing well for himself. He was praetor in 24 CE, which was just below consul in terms of prestige, and the fact that he had married the daughter of Apronius suggested he was a man on the up. Unfortunately for Silvanus, Apronia had died painfully, hitting the Roman ground hard. Even more unfortunately for Silvanus, Apronius did not believe that his daughter, his good Roman daughter of excellent stock, had simply stumbled and fallen out of her bedroom window in the middle of the night by accident, because that is a ludicrous thing to happen. Nor did Apronius, and please imagine here the most cliched, upstanding Roman man you possibly can, a straight-backed, no-bullshit military man in his fine purple toga, think that his daughter had deliberately defenestrated herself, which was Silvanus's version of events. He believed that Silvanus had pushed her. He believed this strongly enough that he wanted Silvanus prosecuted for it, and he wanted this taken all the way to the emperor. Now, you'll note that we have already diverged from what we may expect our narrative to be. In murder stories, the word dead woman is found in the prologue, and then chapter one opens with a grizzled alcoholic detective examining the crime scene. But no police will appear here to investigate Apronia's suspicious death. There will be no representative of the state of Rome who will get involved in this case unless Apronius took it to the emperor, because as far as the Romans were concerned, the murder of wives, children, husbands, or really anyone at all was absolutely none of their business. 
So thank you for that. That definitely gives <laughs> listeners a sense of just how, how juicy and exciting your, your writing is <laughs> and the you. book is. <laughs> so um, uh, so uh, could we uh, uh, focus on that a little more? You, you mentioned right at the end this idea that, um, and you, you talk about this more in the book, that uh, murder for Roman law uh, was not necessarily forbidden. What, what, what does that mean exactly? It basically means it's not, as far as the state is concerned, for most of what we consider to be Roman history, a crime. So it is not something that the state will prosecute or that there are particular laws against because Rome is at its core um, until you get well into the imperial period, is a um, family-based structure with a self-help legal system. So the core of the of the Roman state is the family, um, with a patriarch at the head of it, and the role part of the role of the family is to settle disputes with one another without getting the state involved. Um, and so it takes something really, really drastic for the state to be involved, which happens very rarely. Um, and so we don't actually see that many murders. It's You have to really kind of find them. And often it is... Um, you get a glimpse of something that has happened within a family because for the most part, murders happen between people that know each other. Um, and for the most part, that is dealt with within the family, with the patriarch and the kind of family council or the family, the two families who are involved coming together to have a discussion about what should happen. Um, and it is not something that... Um, is considered to be a threat to the state, basically. The control of violence is not considered to be something that the state needs to do um, because it you can't hurt the state by doing a violence to somebody within it. Um, whereas in the world that we live in, violence is controlled by the state. Um, and if I... If I come to your house and punch you in the face, then you can call the police and tell them Emma came to my house and punched me in the face. Um, and they are invested in preventing private citizens from doing violence to one another. So they would be invested in prosecuting me for assault or battery or something. Um, whereas if you attempted to tell any Roman authority that I had come to your house and punched you in the face, they would be like, okay. <laughs> <laughs> Um, and we see this in in the later empire. You start to see um, they become more invested in controlling violence, largely because it becomes more important to protect individuals within the state. When the entire entirety of the stability of the state rests on one person, then it becomes more important that not everyone can just stab each other. <laughs> uh, uh, and so if they become more invested in saying, can you not just kill each other in your houses? Um, and also, can you not kill slaves, which is the other thing that Rome has, which really unbalances how they see violence, because Rome is a complete complete slavery economy. The empire is built entirely on um, huge, unbearable numbers of enslaved people um, doing everything within doing the building, doing the mining, doing the transporting, doing the carrying of literally people around. Um, and if you have all of these people that you don't see as people because you see them as effectively livestock, um, Then, and you can do all kinds of violence to them. And they liked describing that in their laws. 
to a really weird degree, um, then um, you if then you can't really control the violence that people do to one another um, because it just totally skews how you see uh, violent acts. So those those are the kind of two reasons why it's just not something that the state is is interested in. It doesn't seem important at most points in Roman history to be. Um, to be trying to control who, whether people are killing their husbands or whether they are um, pushing people down the stairs or whatever, it's just not doesn't change the running of the state. So why would they? Right, right. But but to be clear, it's not that the Roman state thought that these were necessarily good things to, to be engaged in. It's just that they thought that the proper sphere or agency agent to control these kinds of um, antisocial or whatever behavior was the private domain of individual citizens and their families. Yeah, so that is a, a domestic family matter, not a public state matter. It's not something that you even necessarily need to take to court. Um, and it's ideally something that you wouldn't talk about. So, uh, <laughs> um, so you just don't, um, it, it's a yeah, a family matter. And the family is something that is often overlooked when people talk about the Roman world, particularly, um, you know, the Republic. Um, but so much of Roman life is structured around the family and around the gens, and that is the primary um, focus for Romans is the family and then the, the wider gens um, and then the state kind of is a larger version of that, but the family is so important um, and controls so much of everyone's lives. Right, right. And you talk in the book a lot about the distinction between homicide and murder. What exactly was that distinction in Roman society? Um, basically, the um, distinction in Rome is intent, um, which is uh, pretty much what it is now. I got really obsessed with that for ages. Um, and if I think somebody hadn't stopped me, the entire book, <laughs> um, because I just got really into legal distinctions between different types of murder, um, like first degree, second degree, and then intentional homicide, unintentional homicide, and how it can change just a court, like, within geographical spaces um so yeah if i hadn't been reeled in i would do that might have just kept going for a hundred thousand um but but in the uh what it comes down to eventually in roman law is intent did you throw that spear intending to hit them or did you throw the spear just because you were cross um and eventually when they come round to um thinking up in attempted murder which is under hadrian um it's intent that matters so did you um did you punch him hoping that you would hit his head and die or did you just punch him in which case um you're okay which is obviously the hardest thing to prove like did you um intend to kill him or did you just accidentally hit him with the spear that you threw um and that seems to be the case from we don't have as much of the 12 tables which is the like the original law code as it might look like we do and we only have this little tiny fragment of what looks like it might be a homicide law and it is a but it seems to also say it's about intent whether you meant to kill them or whether you accidentally killed them um and that's 
But homicide is any time a person kills a person. So in war, in capital punishment, in accidentally running them over, in um, euthanasia, all, all of those are homicide. But murder is the one where you meant to do it and you meant to do it maliciously and you meant to do it without the without the permission of some kind of structure, so the military or um, capital punishment or something along those lines. Right, and that, and it's only the murder that the that the Roman state is at all interested in legislating and controlling, yeah, or, or punishing. Yeah, uh, well, although they are strangely interested in um, violence in certain circumstances, but largely because the end of the Roman Republic is so violent <laughs> um, <laughs> that they are kind of forced to introduce laws, and that's when you see the first laws about. Um, deliberate murder, but they're very, very specific about types of different murders. This comes in under Sulla in 81 BCE um, when there have been these wars that have gone on for ages and they have obliterated the Roman ruling classes um, and they have left it so that people are um, killing each other to get back at one another constantly. Um, And it seems like people are stabbing each other in the streets and having fights and, but are also manipulating the law courts. So they're bribing people to find, you know, Lucius guilty of um, extortion so that he will be exiled or he will be executed. And so everything is kind of falling apart. So Sulla brings in the first law, which is says that you're not allowed to carry uh, a knife with the intent of killing someone with it. Uh, if you could prove that you weren't intending to kill somebody, <laughs> different matter. Um, you're not allowed to poison people and you're not allowed to uh, manipulate the courts. <laughs> uh, but it's like in the late Republic, there's like that period from the social wars through to Julius Caesar where violence becomes such a disturbingly common occurrence on the streets of Rome um, that they have to start. Uh, it's preventing the world from working, so they have to start legislating against it and bringing courts to stop people from <laughs> from literally fighting in the streets or stabbing each other at funerals, which is a thing that happens. Um, wow. <laughs> facing each other across the forum um, and, yeah, literally getting into physical fights with disturbing regularity. <laughs> Wow, wow. Um, so speaking of different classes of murder, what did Roman law uh, say about the murder of parents by children? Uh, that is the worst kind of crime. That is the one kind of crime that from the very beginning, in fact, the, um, you know, the foundation of Rome is Romulus and Remus, and then you have those Sabine women um, who uh, prevent a war from happening because they've been... Do you know the story of the Sabine women? <laughs> Um, uh, remind our listeners. <laughs> so uh, Rome is founded by Romulus, um, and he invites uh, people to come to the city by giving them sanctuary, but he only offers men sanctuary, so they don't get any women, weirdly enough. So in order to, um, in order to get wives for his women so that they will be able to have children, he sets up a festival, invites all of the neighbouring towns, and then while they're watching the games, he kidnaps all their women. Uh, (laughs) so he literally just stands up and steals like 600 women um the sabines all the neighboring towns are not massively keen on this so they go to war um in order to um try to get their women back 
uh, which goes on for so long that the women, some of the women have children. They all marry the Romans, they have children. Um, and so when it comes down to the final battle, uh, the Sabine women throw themselves between the two armies and say, look, either you're going to leave us orphans or you're going to leave us widows with children. Um, and now by marrying us and by having legitimate marriage and children, you have made yourselves relatives. And so you are now committing parricide by killing one another because a father-in-law killing a son-in-law, son-in-law killing a father-in-law, they are now related. So you are now committing the most disgusting and worst of all crimes. Um, and so they all go, okay, yeah, you're right. Um, and put down their swords um, and agree to be friends forever. <laughs> and that's the foundation of Rome. Um, and it, at the core of that is this idea that a family member killing a family member is the worst possible crime. And of that, the worst of the worst is patricide, which is um, a child killing their parent, um, which is so kind of disgustingly polluting and shocking that um, it's punished with this extremely weird uh, punishment where the um, patricide is put in a sack um, with a dog, a monkey, a snake and a chicken um, <laughs> and then thrown into the River Tiber. Um, according to Cicero, the sack is so that um, they will not even pollute the ground ever again or the air with their body. So even when their bones um, wash up, they will not be polluting the earth because they are so disgusting that they cannot be allowed to breathe the same air as us. No one knows what the dog, the chicken, the monkey, the rest of it's all about. It's just to make it a bad time. <laughs> Um, but they, it's a very elaborate, um, very um, kind of ritualized way of executing um, somebody for the crime that from the start they are like, this is the worst possible thing. And it's because the, the father, the like the respect that goes between father and son, father and child um, in particular is a religious duty, basically called pietas. Um, and so killing a father is just the most um, sacrilegious as well as, um, uh, trying to think of a good word, it's sacrilegious as well as just being kind of wrong on a moral level. Uh, it's not just sec kind of secularly wrong, it's also um religiously wrong and they they that's what they like to call um like the murder of julius caesar patricide and why the emperors then continually call themselves the father of the country because they then give themselves that really like you owe me a religious piety <laughs> um as well as me being an authority figure you also have to give me out of duty um this religious respect i see and and um uh, speaking of of um, Roman emperors uh, and murder, uh, to what extent did Roman emperors use murder as a tool or political strategy? Ooh, um, they weren't supposed to. <laughs> <laughs> uh, bad emperors use it loads uh, because they can. Um, the major separation between a bad emperor and a good emperor is one who um, one who kills a lot of people just because he can is a bad emperor. Um, and one who kills a lot of people uh, but finds a good reason for it is a good emperor. Uh, <laughs> or he doesn't kill that many people. Um, it absolutely is a political tool from the very start because you um, 
like the second emperor is Tiberius, um, and pretty much his first act is to kill um, the only legitimate uh, rival to his power, his guy called Agrippa Posthumus, who is Augustus's biological grandson. Um, and he's been exiled because he likes fishing too much uh, <laughs> um, and was a bit rude. So they had exiled him, but he was still alive and there was a potential that he could come and threaten Tiberius's power. So the like day one, Tiberius has him killed. Um, and so the, it's a sound political strategy to get rid of anyone who is a threat to you. And that is always the first thing that any emperor does is anyone who could potentially be a legitimate heir to them they bump them off very quickly um the way that you do it and you're a good emperor is that you tell the senate you're going to do it and you get them to agree or you hold a trial um because the setup is that this is a really fun thing about romans and one of the reasons why i love them so much is that they're so confused about what they're doing all the time the deal with emperors is that they never say that they're an emperor uh, <laughs> they always say that they're just the princeps, the first citizen, um, and that they have just happen to have all of these amazing powers. Um, but it is by the consent of the Senate and the people of Rome that they have all of these powers, and it's just because they're the best of men. Um, and then the Senate is an, their advisory council, and everything they do is done with the consent of the Senate. And they tell the Senate what they're going to do, and the Senate votes on it and says yes. Um, and the fact that they can, if they want to, have everybody in the room executed um, and that nobody will really do anything about that is kind of supposed to be unspoken and hidden, and they agree that they don't do that. Bad emperors are ones who refuse to engage in that pantomime, basically, and who, like Caligula or Nero or Elagabalus, are just like, oh, I'm the emperor, I want to wear my golden dress. Um, and if you tell me that I can't wear my golden dress, then I'm going to have you killed um, and just have people killed for stupid reasons. Um and that freaks the Senate out and then the Senate write the history. So they get to be, <laughs> they're a bad emperor. Good emperors are ones who say, this guy was really horrible to me about and my golden dress. Um, and I would like him tried and I would like you all to um, exile him, please. And they say, yes, absolutely. Um, and that's a good emperor because he asked for permission. <laughs> but all of them use... Um, use execution use murder use um use death as a way to control their own you know as a political tool to make sure that their life is a bit smoother um whether they do it with the senate's consent or whether they do it by themselves because they want to is the difference between what the senate considers to be a murder and a very good execution indeed I see. I see. <laughs> so, so you mentioned that you love the Romans, um, I do. but but uh, when you read uh, your someone reads your book, you seem to have um, uh, let's say complicated feelings about yeah. Cicero. And, <laughs> And, and I'm I'm curious, especially as a, as a non-expert in this topic, uh, Cicero is often uh, uh, referenced and and analyzed by other experts and hailed as this great, you know, Roman, this great thinker. <laughs> so I'm really wondering, what's your beef with Cicero? <laughs> Cicero, Cicero is kind of emblematic, actually. So Cicero is super useful because one, his Latin was very beautiful. 
Um, and two, he had um, a massive enough ego that he thought it was a good idea to write down his version of everything about Rome, basically. So he's like, I've decided that I'm going to write the definitive history of political office, um, which is a wild thing to do. But because his Latin was so good, it survived. So, so much we know just because his Latin was so good um, and he was so good at speaking that his version of Rome has survived for such a long time, which is brilliant and I'm glad for it. But he's just so... All of his letters have survived, um, and he's just such a pompous little stoic. <laughs> <laughs> I'm always being criticised for being mean about stoic. <laughs> it's because I find them so funny, and because everyone else is nice about them. Um, and stoicism is having a real moment at the moment uh, where there's just tons of books being published about how great stoicism is. So I feel it's useful to have one person who is me saying maybe there's other philosophical school <laughs> um, but he's he's got a massive ego um, and he is just so pompous about everything that he does while simultaneously being kind of a crawly little weird <laughs> um and he also did totally uh, execute a person without trial and then declare it to be the greatest thing he'd ever done and he left his wife for a younger woman so he could have all of her money um so on the one hand, I appreciate him as a scholar. And when you read his speeches and his, and you can, like, the power of the Latin is amazing. Like, you can really imagine what it must have been like to be bludgeoned by these speeches and be like, yeah, God, he, this totally, this is unbelievable as an argument. Um, but, and then you read his letters and you're like, oh my God, <laughs> I never want to meet you. <laughs> Um, so that's yeah so it is it's a purely personal thing I have a very similar thing with Seneca um, who I also think is a pompous little stoic (laughs) he's also a big stoic you know a famous famous stoic yeah I think it's just me and stoics (laughs) so so well that begs the question what's your thing about stoicism that um, so many other people seem to find it deeply compelling if not something that they want (laughs) to necessarily take on for themselves as their you know uh, uh, life philosophy uh, but you seem to be kind of allergic to stoicism <laughs> what, what is it what is it about stoicism that rubs you the wrong way um i think it is well so stoicism a lot of it is about um emotional regulation like and um uh, a lot of you can see why it's useful in this kind of modern world because a lot of it's about kind of personal responsibility and then um, emotional regulation. And it's like, it's not the thing that happened, but it is the way that you react to the thing that happened. And a lot of the ethics of it are around that. Um, uh, Whereas I um, think that's not necessarily that helpful and also prevents people from changing the world around them. You're like, oh, well, a terrible thing happens, but if I choose that I am not going to be affected by it, then I will not be affected by it. Um, Whereas I, I have an ongoing argument with my friend, Belle, who is a, considers herself to be a Stoic. And as a result, I now consider myself to be an Epicurean, just largely to <laughs> be an opposite to her. <laughs> um, of living a, a voluptuous, hedonistic life um, and living a good life means that everybody is um, enjoying the world as much as they can. I see. I see. Yeah. Well. So. Well. Well. Since you mentioned Epicurus, um, I I have to mention that I I recently read a book by Stephen Greenblatt uh, called The Swerve, all about um, uh, um, on the nature of things, the Lucretius's uh, on the nature oh, yeah, of yeah. things, and and he argues 
that that um, Epicurus is is largely misunderstood, has been misrepresented from antiquity until today. That because uh, Epicurus um, promoted uh, um, enjoyment of life and rational thought, he was often portrayed, as you said, as a hedonist, as yeah. someone who said that the only thing that's important is you know uh, um, excessive uh, uh, indulgence or whatever, and that that's not at all what no. Epicurus stood for. So you could you could correct the record right now. <laughs> no, I mean his he does think that you should enjoy life and that the main aim of life should be comfort, but it should be comfort for everybody. It should be you cannot live a good and and rational life if you are enjoying the world at the expense of other people. And therefore, Epicureanism a lot of it is um, about how do you make the world better for other people as well as yourself. How do you make it so that that guy can enjoy? good food and good wine as much as I can enjoy good food and good wine. So um, it's a more socially responsible, I think. Um, you have to go, if my friend Belle ever writes a, um, a book, you'll get her on to talk about how stoicism is better. <laughs> so we, have, we do just stand around and have these arguments in pubs. <laughs> Uh, I think a pub is definitely the place to have yeah. a debate about uh, enjoyment of life and, <laughs> and rational thought. And, yeah, and you whether you're allowed to feel your feelings. Uh, uh, yeah, well, I think that does sound like fascinating debates. <laughs> uh, speaking of correcting the record, um, what are some of the myths about gladiatorial bat- uh, combat Ooh. promoted by films like uh, uh, Ridley Scott's Gladiator starring Russell Crowe uh, that just are you know, completely miss oh, the gosh. historical reality of these events? Well, the main one is that gladiatorial battle was supposed to end in a death or that it was some kind of execution. So you get that in most things which show um, gladiatorial battle in any way. So there's like the big famous, are you not entertained, Phil, section of Gladiator is when he is sent in with no armor and his nipples out and just one sword against like five massive guys wearing the big helmets. And the idea is that they're going to kill him and then he beheads them all. Um, And most films that are going to show gladiatorial combat somebody show it as as an execution, as if people are being sent in against gladiators to be killed by them, which it is not at all. If you're going to execute someone, you're going to send them to an animal or set them on fire. Um, That is what executions are. Gladiatorial battle is a very um, stylized and very heavily regulated um, battle between two expert fighters. It's closer to fencing or boxing. Um, than it is to an execution and there are like specific setups and they are very well trained in parrying in attacks against different types of fighters and there are um, plays that they will have against one another and if you've got five guys on one side there will be five guys on the other it's never going to be nobody wants to see five guys kill one guy because that's a really boring like you don't want to go and see the best football team in the world play the worst football team in the world and then have them win four billion to one. That's just not fun to watch. And it wasn't like watching one guy get executed by five big guys is not that fun to watch. Um, what they want to see is a close battle between two people who are both really, really good. Um, and sometimes, no one knows how often, um, like people guess, but they're guessing from their imaginations. Uh, but like maybe 
ended in a death, um, either accidentally or because somebody, they were actually killed. So what happens is that the end of a match is when one person surrenders um, or dies by accident, but assuming that they surrender. um, And they do that by putting their hand in the air and then the editor, the person who is in charge, who has put the games on, um, will then decide whether they're going to be killed or whether they are going to survive um, to fight another day. We know for a fact that most of them survive to fight another day because we have all of this graffiti. We have all of these um, souvenirs, like souvenir glasses and souvenir plates from gladiatorial games and um, uh, posters, advertising posters on walls, which say, you know, Spiculus, winner of 16 matches, Spiculus survived, you know, has won X amount, has lost Y amount, has won six, lost six. And so we know that they were, you know, most of the time they were not being killed. But sometimes, and it was possible, that they... um they could be killed. It was a potential for the end of everyone. It was probably extremely exciting when it did happen because they would be on the ground and then they would be stabbed in the throat with a gladius, which would give you a big spurt of blood. Um, <laughs> many, many more oh probably. God. Yeah, I talked to some people about this because I was like, what would it actually look like? Like, am I looking at a guy far away on the floor, like just go limp or what and a bunch of people like some uh, an ex-soldier and a couple of medical people were like no because it's going through the the kind of arteries and when your blood is up that is going to be like a six foot spur you're gonna have to put like a not safe for work <laughs> like it's going to be a huge initial spurt so that comes out and drenches a good area um the other so th- thing, this yeah. is a kind of uh, really hard hitting <laughs> analysis that readers could expect from your book, where you go into real detail of yeah, not just who was killed or, or, or when, <laughs> but just literally how it would look as a kind of performance piece yeah. for someone to be killed in the gladiatorial arena. And the kind of atmosphere of that waiting, are they going to let them go? Are they going to die? Is this going to be the day that I see somebody? Um, And yeah, the other thing that's always, always left out is there is a, um, there's a referee in there with them um, who is watching every move, making sure that they are not doing anything illegal and not killing each other too early or, and that nobody does anything that they shouldn't be. So that referee is never, never put on screen. (laughs) <laughs> I see. I see. Uh, um, all right. So switching topics slightly. Um, uh, how does poison show up in Roman murder history? <laughs> poison is a woman's thing. Um, poison appears a lot. Um, the appears a lot in the imperial period, particularly um, when people start getting conspiratorial about what is happening within the Roman palace. Um, and then but it is culturally it is from the very beginning seen to be a sneaky women's um a sneaky woman's weapon uh, that they do and that gives women a power that they shouldn't be allowed to have that they can sneakily do behind your back um it is interestingly really closely related to um magic and the line between magic and poison is really blurry but um both of them are seen as sneaky women's things, having power over life and death that they shouldn't have. Um, and so um, so you only see women being accused of it or effeminate men. <laughs> 
So men who are considered to be um, to be unmanly are often accused of being poisonous, well, like poisoning people. So Nero is considered to be um, a highly feminine um, and um, is accused of all kinds of things. And one of the things he's accused of is poisoning, um, attempting to poisoning his mother, but poisoning his brother and poisoning some children and poisoning all kinds of people. Um, and obviously being involved in the poisoning of Claudius, his uh, adoptive father. Um, but for the most part, the first poisoning you see is, um, it's, it's quite a good story, actually. Um, it's in um, in the kind of second century BC, there's this outbreak of, uh, outbreak of plague, some kind of plague in the city. Um, but um, people are dying in weird ways. And an enslaved girl comes forward and says that a group of women have got together and are using the plague as a cover to murder their husbands. So, uh, Emma, you were just saying about women murdering their husbands. Uh, yes. Take it from there. <laughs> so this enslaved woman comes forward and tells um, the consuls that the these women, these prominent women, have been using cover of the plague to murder their husbands. So they've been pretending to give them antidotes to the plague, but they have actually been giving them poison. Um, and... That so the Senate bring these women in and try them, um, and so they go, oh no no, we're just giving out medicine. It's just, um, it's not bad herbs. It's good herbs. It's nothing bad. Uh, and the Senate go, okay, well if it's that good, then do you want to take take some now in front of him? <laughs> <laughs> um, and it, um, and prove that you don't mean any harm with it. Um, and the women, uh, twenty of them, they all go, can we have a minute? Um, and they go out and have a conversation and they go, look, if we don't take it, then they're going <laughs> to, then this is going to end us being executed. If we do take it, we're going to die. And um, so they just go in and take the poison that they have been giving their husbands. <laughs> and this causes a, this immense moral panic in Rome. And eventually something like a hundred women are rounded up and exiled for being involved in it. Um, and from that point forward, basically, it's considered that um, at any minute, your wife could be trying to sneak something into your breakfast cereal. Um, and it is a um, something that you always have to be on the lookout for. And so by, by the time you get emperors, they have official tasters who are tasting everything. Um, there's a whole college of tasters who are trained to taste with different poisons. Um, and then being a skilled poisoner becomes um, uh, not quite a profession, but something that you can have a reputation for that if you can um, develop a poison that kills quickly when someone needs it quick or slow so it looks like a disease um, then <laughs> you can you can develop a reputation for doing the best poisons um, whether the amount of poisoning that they think happened actually happened is a different question because they have no concept of disease um, and they anything that looks even slightly weird is going to look like a poison or magic um, and so people like Livia, um, who my difficult cat is named after, who is the wife of the first emperor, has this reputation as being a, a mad poisoner, of poisoning uh, four or five people in her family because everyone that Augustus sets up as his heir dies. 
<laughs> almost immediately afterwards like within a couple of years they're dead um, and they all do die like one stabbed a couple die in war some of them just drop dead um but this reputation develops around her that because it is her biological son who becomes his successor that she was the kind of mysterious power behind all of these killings um and you get that a lot where it's basically when power with it within the state starts existing in private so when the imperial house becomes an imperial court um and being close to the emperor is the main thing and lots of things start happening in secret in domestic spaces which affect how who is chosen to be the next consul who is chosen to be the next whoever that to lead the next war then conspiracy theories start to develop around every single um early or unusual or premature death um and I compare it in the book to like JFK and Princess Diana. When young people die, the first thing anyone thinks of is conspiracy. Something must have happened um, to cause this because it's not possible this person could just have died. Um, and that's basically how they feel in the Roman world, except they immediately go to poison, seek it, sneaky poison. I see. I see. And uh, what is dignitas and how does it relate to murder? Ah, uh, uh, dignitas is like honor um your a man has dignitas and then women have the dignitas of their husbands or their fathers basically so it's effectively honor um and how much dignitas you have is how important you are if you are murdered and how much of a big deal it is going to be so people have um the higher up you are in terms of um magistracies or jobs within the state um are give you more dignitas and if you achieve things then you get more dignitas so they're kind of like um like points in a video game (laughs) the original draft of this book had a very extensive um uh, analogy to hit points in and health points in, <laughs> um, in a video game, which I tormented my husband with explaining them to me, and then I deleted the whole thing just to make it worse. But <laughs> um, but basically, you can gather on like you start with a kind of baseline of dignitas depending on who your parents are, and then you can get more depending on how much you achieve in your life. So if you're born like the son of a praetor, then you can achieve more by becoming a praetor himself. And then you can become the best friend of the emperor. And then you can get this great job or you can become a censor or you get dignitas. Um, And all of that is related to how you fit into the functions of the state, essentially. So um, how important you are to um, the powers that be. And if you are then murdered, then your death is a threat to the state because you can't just go around killing senators. You can't just go around killing consuls. They have dignitas and that's supposed to protect them. Um, If you have no dignitas, um, if you have no, if you're just a random guy on the street and you're just a, I don't know, a cobbler, um, you don't, you're of no use to the state. You have no power. You have no, um, function within the running of the res publica um and so it doesn't matter if you die it doesn't (laughs) it's of no interest to anybody who have any importance whether you die you kill a consul or an ex-consul and you are injuring a, a a member of the um 
of power, basically the member of the um, the ruling class, and particularly somebody who works to continue that power, to reproduce that power. Um, and so that you murder that person, you've got to be dealt with. Um, if you murder his wife, less of an issue. Um, if you murder one of his freedmen, eh. if you murder one of his enslaved people, you may as well have just kicked over a chair. <laughs> wow. <laughs> wow. Yeah. And then you have fama on top of that, which is reputation. So dignitas is like your honor. And then reputation is what other people say about you. Um, so if you have a good reputation and a lot of honor, then everyone is going to care if you are her. If you have, um, like, uh, if you don't have either of those things, or if you are a consul, but everyone thinks you're a bit of a bastard, then <laughs> people might care slightly less and they might do slightly less to make sure that your killers are brought to justice. <laughs> wow. <laughs> uh, what was the concept of maestis? And how is it used to get uh, to get people killed through the court system? Uh, this is my favorite part. No one ever asked me about it, so I'm glad that you did. <laughs> <laughs> so maestas is um, like laissez majesté or treason against the majesty of the emperor or the imperial house or the concept of an imperial house, um, which means that it can be whatever the ruling emperor says it is. So some don't really have that much of an ego so you couldn't get Vespasian for example to prosecute someone for treason against his majesty because he doesn't really feel like he has any um but some like um Caligula and Tiberius and Domitian are very very into the majesty of their position and Nero is another one a lot of the ones that are considered to be bad emperors um and so certain unscrupulous people could bring prosecutions for maestas against um people that they wanted out of the way people who stood who had wronged them in some way or people who they had any kind of grudge against um or even just people that they didn't like the look of or who had a lot of stuff because if you prosecute someone um and they're exiled or executed the prosecutor gets quarter of their estate so if they have a lot of estates and you prosecute them you can get their nice gardens or their really lovely house in herculaneum um and so one of the most they're called delators so like people who are informers basically it's often um uh, translated as informers but they use it they use the courts and they use the fragile egos of the emperors um to advance their own position and to get rid of people that they don't like um the one that i like the most because he's kind of the most famous is a guy called regulus um who rises to power under nero by prosecuting uh, a father and son for having the surname pithecus um so this is just like a, a, a family name. Um, it doesn't really mean anything. It's just a cognomen. They've got it from somebody way back in the past. But Nero had recently, quote unquote, won um, the Pythian Games um, with his singing um, <laughs> in Greece after going around Greece and forcing everybody to put on games and then mysteriously winning them. <laughs> Um, and Regulus brought a case claiming that um, by having this surname, this family were diminishing the majesty of Nero winning the Pythian Games because it made them look like it made it look like they thought they were on his level. <laughs> oh my god! Which is obviously ridiculous, but because Nero gets to basically decide who 
what happens in the court system and nobody wants to um upset Nero because he's got a short temper <laughs> um they they refuse to change their name they say no it isn't it's just um, don't be ridiculous um and so they are both exiled for having this <laughs> Oh, wow. It turns out that the father had previously prosecuted Regulus's father for something else um, and had caused him to... And so this is basically a grudge match. Um, and this is what Regulus does, and this is what a lot of people do, is that they bring these ludicrous prosecutions against people. So Tiberius, he is a case of somebody who... Um, took a coin with Augustus's face on it into the toilets. Um, and the, they, this case is brought to court because you can bring a ca- any case to court, basically. Um, and he is forced to listen to somebody saying that taking this coin with his adoptive father's face into the toilet is a destruction of his majesty. <laughs> um, he throws that one out, but he does execute a guy who puts his put his statue in his garden on higher ground than a statue of Tiberius. <laughs> Oh my gosh. And that wow. person is executed. <laughs> um, and so depending on the temperament of the emperor, you can use these cases to get rid of people who have annoyed you to get people. And this is what Regulus does through two reigns. He um, gathers himself a huge fortune and a huge reputation and ingratiates himself with the emperor Um by prosecuting people for hunting for anything like has he said something at a party that he shouldn't have said has somebody written a poem that they shouldn't have written has somebody put a statue in a place that they shouldn't have put a statue (laughs) um and then prosecuting them and then um yeah getting rid of his enemies and using the courts as a way to eliminate people who are in his way or who have bothered him in some way and also advancing himself um, and all of these people end up dead. Yeah. <laughs> wow. Wow. Very disturbing. Uh, well, moving on to another disturbing uh, uh, topic. What was the purpose of the crucifixion method of killing a person in Roman society? Uh, crucifixion is fascinating and horrible. The main purpose is that it is very, very humiliating Um, very very painful and very very public and goes on for a long time so it is something that you only do to people who have no dignitas Um, although once you are convicted of a crime you become what's called infames which means you have no family and no dignitas stripped away from you you become a non-person but 98% of the time it's done to enslaved people foreigners and people who have done the worst of the the worst of the worst crimes um and it is you are lashed beforehand um and then you are there's actually a really long debate about whether nailing or tying was more common um because there are not that many nails um that have been found uh in crucifixion contexts partly this is because they reuse nails um because they're quite hard to make like individually. Um, and partly it is because they were taken as um, to be used in magic and medicine as a kind of talisman. But we do have um, one or two examples. There's one from Jerusalem, I believe, which is an ankle which has, still has the nail in it. Um, and from that, we know where they it went through the ankle. <laughs> um, and you would be nailed through the wrists and through the ankle. Um, it's through the, 
the wrist so that because it would tear right through your hand basically um and then they are specifically put in the most public parts of town so outside gates at crossroads um at places where they can be seen from marketplaces um and there are written sources that say specifically we do this so that everybody knows what happens when you mess with the romans um you this is what happens to you uh, and the main purpose is to really be a, a a very visceral graphic warning and deterrent to anybody else that if you mess with the romans in any way if you and you are not protected by having a position within the state, then this is the horrific, agonizing, um, monstrously humiliating thing that is going to happen to you. Um, And then the bodies are left there for ages. Um, But they were specifically, it's a very public thing to happen. Um, And yeah, I did a lot of reading on how people die when they're crucified and then regretted it. So that's in the mix. <laughs> yeah, I, I, I could see that. I could see that. Uh, speaking about um, innovations and in killing, um, uh, what was Julius Caesar's innovation with how to kill prisoners? Oh, I've forgotten. What was Julius Caesar's innovation with how <laughs> well, to kill prisoners? If, if memory serves, you talked about uh, reenacting historical oh, battles. Yes, scenes. he did innovate that. Yes. <laughs> I think we often, I was, uh, uh, it jumped out at me because uh, uh, I think, you know, most people think of Julius Caesar, obviously, often think about, you know, Shakespeare's play, but more generally, you think about a statesman and, uh, (laughs) you know, this great uh, intellect, a leader or something, and then to think about his innovation, you know, in quotes, uh, in, in terms of murdering, you know, prisoners. He innovated in a lot of ways. He was a relentless disruptor and innovator. Um, uh, he, yes, so he had too many prisoners um, and too much money. And one of his, he has no respect for anything that might be considered a tradition or um, propriety either, which is how he gets as far as he does. But he, after his wars in Gaul, particularly, um, he had taken so many prisoners and enslaved so many people. He boasted that he had killed a million people and enslaved a million more um, in his own book. <laughs> um, and it, so he um, decided that a really fun way to execute them would be to enact battles, uh, to reenact historical battles where either enslaved people would be on two sides and they would have to kill one another. Um, or where they would be fighting against soldiers who, and they would be like the losing side and they would be... Um, so it meant that everybody got a fun day out and got to see, and he got rid of a lot of prisoners at the same time. So it's kind of a win-win for him because the you know main thing that people like is a good day out um, and he didn't have to execute them all individually. Uh, every so often you see that happen again so claudius does the same thing he doesn't really have that many prisoners but after his um invasion of britain he has a few um and so he celebrated a huge engineering project at the fusine lake um by reenacting um battles on boats so um he has them all on rafts on this boat and they're all reenacting naval battles um 
And that's where you get the line. This is another thing that comes up in gladiatorial stuff as well, that we are who are about to die salute you, um, which comes from that battle where a bunch of enslaved prisoners were being literally sent to die in a mock battle <laughs> um, on a lake. Uh, and then this becomes this idea that you can tell a story while executing people um, really takes off uh, when the Colosseum is built. Um, and you have a permanent place where you can hold um, really spectacular executions. Um, and so the Colosseum is built uh, by Vespasian. It's opened by Titus. Um, and it opens with a lot, days worth, of, it's 100 days worth of celebrations, a lot of which are executions which are set up as um mythological retellings so telling a lovely story or a play but when somebody in the play dies they literally do die so they are a prisoner who who dies so um and we have these set of poems by marshall who describes some of them and some of them are genuinely too horrific to say when people might be eating dinner or something and some of them are things like so they would do icarus um flying too close to the sun and that will be some poor guy who is literally like trebucheted across the room (laughs) um or swung on a rope that then drops and he splats on the floor um or they will do this play called laurentius which ends with someone being crucified and then set on fire um and they will do they will crucify them and set them on fire. Um, or they will build a mountain and then the mountain will collapse and um, the person will be thrown into the uh, into the waiting bears underneath who will starved and will eat them. And so it involved, introduces this, um, this idea of narrative tension to an execution. <laughs> <laughs> oh, my God. This is really so horrific. And I think, I mean, we're, we're, we're about out of time, unfortunately, because there's so much that we could, <laughs> we could talk about. But maybe just very briefly, if you, you have any thoughts about, um, you know, just how difficult it is for contemporaries to read um, about murder in Rome, specifically, uh, as you, you were just talking about, you know, murder as uh, theatrics, as as, a, yeah. you know, as, as as entertainment. And that I, th- I think for most people today, it, it's, you know, uh, not only is it, you know, um, unimaginable for us to think about ourselves going to an entertainment that included the actual murder of people on stage. But I think it might, it it also is difficult to imagine that anyone at any time (laughs) in history would view that kind of theater as anything other than, you know, just truly horrific and, and obscene. It's something that they, they would never want to watch. Yeah. And it is, it's a kind of hard to get your head around, um, especially because the kind of traditional idea of the Romans, largely because Britain and America both pretty much based their their systems and their buildings and their republics on Rome as this idealized place. Um, you kind of imagine it as being white togas, white guys, statesmen, lovely white columns, and everybody walking around being terribly civilized. But actually, this is what they were all doing in their spare time. Um, and putting just tons of money and thought and effort into this and um, considering, um, yeah, murder, spectacular, gruesome murder to be a, a facet of 
narrative storytelling um, and a great day out. Um, the main thing that I would like people to take away, I suppose, is that at the core of this, the thing that allows them to do this and to conceptualize death as being something that can be quite fun, it's basically that they dehumanize and completely just do not even consider to be people, just huge swathes of the people who inhabit their world. Um, like the, you know, can guesstimate at the amount of enslaved people that there were, but it was millions of enslaved people who um, they took and raised and they talk about homeborn slaves and da da da. And they are in every facet of Roman life. They are there doing everything. And that is the fact that they have created a system which completely compartmentalizes certain people off as not people is what allows them to then be like, wouldn't it be cool if we just wanged him across the, <laughs> across the Colosseum and he just exploded. Um, and, it, you know, that is at the core of Romanness as much as any of the rest of it, as much as the stoicism and the building and the, um, and the lovely togas. Um, and that is kind of the, the main thing that you always have to keep in mind when you're looking at the Romans is that they have just a fundamentally, um, skewed perspective on what a person is and it is completely defined on your role in society right uh certainly something worth remembering and, and thinking a great deal about uh we're gonna have to leave it there for today thank you for taking the time to share your thoughts with us we really thank appreciate you it so much for your questions that concludes our program thanks for listening and have a great day